Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. And I'm Peter Lim. Ken Harrow is professor at Michigan State University, specializing in African literature and cinema, post-colonialism, feminism, and the African diaspora. His many publications include Faces of Islam in African Literature and Postcolonial African Cinema. And recent interests include Border Transmigration, the Production of African Cultures, and Cultures of Trash. Saladi Hassan is a professor of literature at Michigan State University as well. He works on imperialism and its legacies in Africa, Asia, and the Mideast, Arabs and African Americans, Islam and Islamophobia, and postcolonial literatures. He's published widely on Africa and the Middle East, is completing a book on Palestine and post-coloniality, and is co-director of a very recent film, Death of an Imam. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks. Well, with the events taking place in North Africa and in the the Middle East or West Asia, whichever appellation you prefer, uh, we thought it would be good to have an episode of the podcast focused on the conflicts going on in these regions. And also there's a tendency in African studies to decapitate the continent and leave North Africa uh, out of it. And I think this is an excellent opportunity for all of us to uh, deal with that, uh, I think, mistaken view. So today, as we record this podcast, there's clearly a a revolutionary situation in Libya, uh, quite chaotic, confusing. It seems like the eastern part of the country is under the control of the anti-government forces. Uh, We don't quite know what's going on in the West, but we know the reports that are coming out are are, are quite harrowing. Sorry, Ken. Um, Let's talk just briefly about Libya and then go back in time to Tunisia and then Egypt. Uh, Your perspective, uh, Ken? Well, Libya seems like, in in some sense, a more extreme case of what's happened in the other countries uh, for a couple of reasons. The Gaddafi and his rule wasn't exactly the same as that of Mubarak and of Ben Ali. He much, I think he much more um, consistently positioned himself as someone who is willing to intervene militarily abroad, and now it turns out as home, at home as well. And, and so in, in a sense, it's much more violent what we're seeing, and the, the people are in greater shock than they were before. And by having dispersed the military forces in his country among different, call them militias, different armies, it's not as simple for the army to rise up and take control as it had been in the other countries. Those are, the, those are my impressions that we're dealing with, with, with a situation of violence which has been unleashed thanks to Qaddafi's uh, approach. And frankly, hearing Qaddafi in the latest broadcast, he sounds unhinged to me, which is uh, he's not making the same pronouncements quite that Mubarak saw himself as the father of the country and Ben Ali. Um, so a, a, as a result, we're having a a violence. The last point I wanted to make is that he's calling upon not just forces whose allegiance was presumably to himself and to his sons, the different, the different uh, military forces, but those who've been identified as mercenaries. This is a, a, a hot topic, particularly, as you said, for Africa, because first of all, North Africa is Africa. The Maghreb is Africa. Libya is, in fact, the country where the term Libya and, and Tunisia is the, co- the country where the term Africa itself comes from. What's really at stake here is the notion of black Africa, of sub-Saharan Africa, as opposed to North Africa. And there's this uh, hor- horrific, really, notion to imagine that he has incorporated black African mercenaries so as to put down the revolt within his own country. And that, ex- that, that doesn't take into account the fact that there are people of dark skin who are 
Libyan to begin with. And secondly, he's been paying for mercenary interventions in places like Chad and Darfur, other parts of the continent, uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, under horrific circumstances. So this is not new to his modus uh, of action. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. The, um, I think the, if you compare Libya with Egypt, you're going to see differences definitely at the top. But at the base, I think what you're seeing is something very similar, and that there's a kind of social solidarity uh, among the Egyptian people and the Libyan people, not between them, but of course there's that at the borders as well with Tunisia. Uh, but the social solidarity among the Libyan people is quite exceptional and I think can be compared favorably with what we saw in Egypt and Tahrir Square throughout Egypt. So this is something that people really aren't talking about as a kind of Arab social solidarity. One's used to thinking of Arabs as being subjugated people either to their colonial rulers or their uh, dictators of the present. But in fact there's a long history of social solidarity that has existed in the face of colonialism and opposed to colonialism and in the face of dictatorial rule. And People don't tend to understand that very well. I think in some ways it does spread to parts of Africa and we can see that in the different kinds of relationships. They haven't always been amicable between the Arab countries and the African countries, but in some cases there has been a great degree of um, uh, social solidarity across the borders and across the desert. And I think that one needs to look at countries like Mali and uh, Niger and you can start to see that. Now again, it hasn't always been to the advantage of the African countries and sometimes it's been opportunistic. So Libyan influence in Mali in particular is quite extensive. The biggest, one of the biggest buildings in Mali is the Libyan Development Bank in, in Bamako and uh, the Libyan uh, influence on mosque development and Islamic development in Mali has been quite remarkable. Um, that said, uh, it's that, that kind of influence I think is much more positive than the kind of things that Ken was pointing to and the military involvement in parts of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa and now bringing in uh, uh, mercenaries from Chad and perhaps other parts of Africa to fight against popular uprisings in Tripoli in particular, that's pretty distressing. But one shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there could also be some Eastern Europeans in the mix of mercenaries that's not uniquely uh, Africans. Um, so I think that uh, the great potential here, I think, is that how will these uprisings in the Arab countries uh, produce models that are um, useful for other countries in Africa that have some of the similar experiences that Egypt, an African country, Tunisia, an African country, and Libya, an African country, have been dealing with. In some ways, the model maybe already existed in South Africa with the anti-apartheid movement and uh, the popular uh, resistance to apartheid in South Africa. And maybe that's the model in some ways that would be one to look at um, in terms of the role of someone like Nelson Mandela in producing a kind of character who can take power, be in a position of power, and then surrender it. I think that's the model that Arab countries need to be looking at in terms of leadership. Well, another interesting aspect, I think, of the North African uh, protests and democratic revolutions is the, if you like, collective nature, the social nature of the protests. Uh, a lot of commentators were perplexed because they couldn't see this leader. They couldn't see the leader. But, and we see this new phenomenon of, uh, of technology, which we can get back to in a minute. But another African resonance was, to me was also Gaddafi's push on the African Union. He wanted actually to see himself as head of the United States of Africa 
but yesterday the African Union denounced his violence against civilians um, and Nigerians have attacked his call for a forcible separation of that country. So there's a lot of interesting resonances going on. Today Mugabe has charged 46 Zimbabweans with watching videos of the Egyptian protests. So one doesn't know how all these protests will pan out. But I wonder if we could now maybe talk a little bit about Egypt and Tunisia. Um, Ken, you've spent time in Tunisia. Uh, Salah, you're very much uh, plugged into Middle Eastern events and debates and discourses. Uh, what was the role of, uh, for instance, youth and women, strikes, technology, popular culture in these, in these real democratic revolutions in Tunisia and in Egypt? Well, it's complicated. And I think, I think there's an interesting response to this. I'll try and sketch a little and ask Salah to help fill in. I, I think that one thing that one hears from the commentators all the time is that each country is different. And therefore, the local issues which have animated the revolt uh, di differs as well. The condition of women, the, the laws under which they lived in Tunisia, for example, from 56 on with independence, was uh, somewhat different, even radically different, from that which one found in other countries, even neighboring countries uh, like Algeria. And it, ch and it changed over time. We could, we could then spend some time talking about the differences, which are meaningful, but there are also commonalities. Some of the com commonal commonalities people focus upon are things like um, a well-educated uh, youthful population, a large percentage of the population which is young, not having employment, um, and that's true. But I think there's, there is one other commonality which is the most important, and that is to see these struggles as really a struggle uh, in some sense for freedom or for justice, something which they felt that their countries have not, have not given them. That's an underlying commonality, which uh, I, I think is, is crucial in asking the question, why would someone go out into the street uh, and risk their lives? So in Tunisia, uh, there were aspects of Tunisian life which were extremely tightly controlled by the government. I've heard frequently, for example, that email was more surveyed in Tunisia than in any other country. Well, it's a small country, but Ben Ali had a really tight control over, over email. Um, there was also the, the fact that Ben Ali played upon the fears of the educated population that were an Islamist revolution to take place, that the women would be heavily oppressed. I heard that when I was there in 2005. And so he played upon that fear. Um, I would say to a certain degree it was successful. And that, that particular fear is ma has been magnified in Morocco and in, uh, and in Egypt as well. So that you have to ask partly, what is the way in which a dictatorial rule is able to sustain itself? What fears can it play upon or generate in order to stay in power? And what are the countervailing uh, forces that can move against it? So. Yeah, um, I think issues like youth and technology are extremely important, of course, in this moment, and not just uh, in the context of the Middle East. We saw this already with Chiapas, for example, in the early 1990s with Subcomandante Marcos mm -hmm. putting out email messages and things like that. So already that kind of mobilization and especially drawing international attention, breaking through the barrier of official media or providing information to uh, the international media where uh, information otherwise would not be available certainly important in creating a certain kind of awareness, uh, providing an imagery 
for, for people outside of the region, but also within the country to, to lock into. And that's very important. But in a, in a region where you know, well over 50% of the population is under 30 years of age. That's, that's not just Egypt, I mean, that's across the board. Uh, where uh, unemployment, where education levels are relatively high given conditions in some of these countries. Um, but unemployment is also high for those same. You're gonna end up with all kinds of social uh, frustrations among young people. Um, where they're, you know, they have no money, so they cannot, can't. They have to live at home. They can't get married. You know, they can't pursue their lives, and they're in their late twenties. Uh, but I wouldn't want to romanticize the technology mm -hmm. issue or the youth issue um, in the in the case of Egypt or Tunisia, uh, for a couple of reasons. For one reason, in Egypt, when they did shut down the internet, it continued. Mm -hmm. it, it actually intensified. And the frustration, I mean, they, they blocked cell phone usage, uh, uh, text messaging, which is used widely, and it's very cheap, of course, and, and like it's a penny a message or nothing if you're receiving. So people were using that to mobilize, and you block that, and people needed that. I mean, they needed that because landlines are hard to get sometimes. So they were creating frustrations for people who otherwise had no resentment towards the regime or very little <clears throat> and weren't necessarily going to go protest. But you cut off their cell phone, and it like cuts them off from their family and their friends and their work. And, so it did create a sense of the um, arbitrary abuse of power by the regime and, and intensified. So the, the, the technology issue is important, but it's also, you know, it worked against the regime when they tried to uh, block it. The youth issue, it's important to keep in mind, Gaddafi was young when he came to power mm -hmm. in Libya. Uh, Bashar al-Assad was young. Uh, they were in their 20s. Um, uh, the king of, uh, king Abdullah of Jordan was 29. I mean, these guys have held on to power. I mean, the real issue is how do you create reasonable succession? And whether you're young or old, what's your relationship to power? And the hope is and the, the belief is that the young people who have been involved in these movements who have not really pushed up any particular individual as a head um, believe in a democratic succession to power. Uh, but I don't think that necessarily aligns with youth. And the, I'll go back to the example of Nelson Mandela. He stepped down. He was an old man, you know, and so um, so what we need is not it's not a question of youth. It's really a question of character, and what is the character of leadership that we can accept, expect to see in this next generation of Arabs? And one hopes that with this experience, you know, we'll we'll see some of the things that happened in Mexico in the 90s. I mean, it's not ideal, but certainly it did break up the monopoly of the pre-party and allowed for uh, certain openings for the other parties in Mexico to, to run for office and actually win and may not be happy with the results, but uh, it certainly did create uh, some, some opportunities politically for others to enter into the process. And so it's gonna, be, it's gonna be a long history and we'll see what happens. I don't expect any immediate fixes, but, um, but the role of youth and the role of technology is always now going to be an issue, I think, because the population is, the demographics are such that uh, it can't be otherwise. The technology is not going away. People are dependent on it. Business is dependent on it. Just to build on this uh, idea of technology and youth and, and popular culture, the role of the mass media, of course, in these revolutions is, is extremely important and quite fascinating. Being in the United States, it's really one of our only ways of following events uh, closely if you don't have relatives or, or colleagues on the ground that are giving you these reports. And I was amazed by how uh, not just you know Anderson Cooper was getting beat up mm. on the streets of Cairo early on 
but also how you had, uh, for example, Shahid Amin resigning from Nile TV very, very publicly and openly, you know, which was, was a key moment as this Egyptian woman journalist, you know, was making a statement in the early days and, and suggested that, you know, parts of the, of the state influenced or controlled media in Egypt were, were turning against Mubarak. You had also Al Jazeera's moment. I mean, I followed most of the stuff on Al Jazeera English uh, streaming live on, on the internet because I wasn't terribly happy with the CNN uh, coverage and it was, it was really of stunning quality. Um, I'm wondering whether, you know, how Al Jazeera's rise, in a sense, changes the, the, the uh, way in which media uh, influence and also report on, on the Middle East in particular. But also Democracy Now! had their senior producer, Sharif Abdel Kudus, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, also reporting and his reports being picked up by other media outlets. Um, what, what did you make of these very interesting dynamics on the ground, uh, both Ken and Sawah? How is this changing? Um, the way we see the Middle East and, and how we understand it and, and how it's being reported. I'll, I'll say a little, a little point here, which is when we're asking questions about media and sitting in Michigan or New York, it's as though the media that we are able to receive are driving the events because they are the ones who make us aware both of the events and of their presence, and we put the two together. Whereas when you are in the midst of the event, how BBC or or the New York Times will be portraying you as secondary. It comes afterward. And I'm, that's what strikes me is the, the, kind, this, the disjunction between a Western perspective when we're sitting in a location um, from the perspective on the ground. I'll give three very quick examples. If you ask the West what's at stake in these, the first thing might not be young people who don't have a voice, who want a, a role in their lives and in their government, but it would have been oil, which we're hear, hearing every single day over and over with Libya, and oh my God, what is that going to do to our economy and to the gas, gas pump price that, well, we, that we have to pay? It's terrorist, oh my God, are those Muslim brotherhoods going to take over and blow up the world? Um, and the third one is, ah, but it's our media, which we've invented, which now they can use in ways that they couldn't before. That's the way in which the West parses these events, and I think it'd be interesting to try to get out of our head not that there's, I mean, these are interesting that these become central, central issues all the time. But what does it reveal, and really what does it tell us about what's going on? Um, what do you... Yeah, so, I, yeah, I absolutely agree, and I was going to say some of the same things. And I actually, in a lecture I gave the other day, I mentioned the two things you talked about. It's like, what, like when we talk about Libya and these protests, the issue of oil is always there as, a, as an important distinction with, say, the Egyptian situation. But like the, that, that it's really what's going to happen to the gallon, you know, what's it going to, with the barrel, what's it going to cost Americans? And then, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt was the, 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 the kind of, it was, it was the, the double of the protesters, right? It was like the doppelganger, this sort of shadow image that we could see in the background and always the specter of the Muslim Brotherhood and, and the threat of militant Islam. So what was happening at the same time as the... Uh, uh, the protests in Tahrir Square was the um, the conservative action political committees were having their convention, and so these these PACs, right? These political action committees were, and Newt Gingrich was one of the speakers, and of course he's then he was nobody paid any attention to it because it was everything was blocked out at that time by what was happening in Egypt, but but if you look back at the speeches that these right wing um, politicians in the U.S. were giving, they all point to the threat of 
uh, militant Islam in Egypt and how Obama has handled this so badly and created an opening and all of these things. And they're using it as a way of like partisan politics pointing to international affairs. But I would say that in, in relation to the media and just to kind of go back to your original question, it's what's the there's two things that I think are extremely important. One is the self-reflecting aspect of our own media. It reflects our own interests in the West, the U.S. media, the mainstream media, New York Times, CNN, in that, in that way. It's like, what are the U.S. interests? And um, so very little, I mean, there are some human interest stories of Egyptians and things like that. But it's important that this, um, well, Renum, who was the Google employee, was kidnapped and abducted and held by the security services and then released. I mean, he's a Google employee. So again, it's like this idea Ken has about how it's like our media. And so Google becomes one of the, one of the points of entry there. But what's interesting is once Mubarak resigns, the Egyptian story falls out of the press and falls off. It's like it falls off a cliff. It's like, okay, he resigned. And on Tuesday, the Tuesday before he resigned, so he resigned on the Friday. He didn't resign. I mean, he was removed. I mean, we don't know what he did, right? All we know is he stepped down. That's, what, that's the way it was reported. But on the Tuesday before, El Ahram had already, that's when Wa'al Ghanim's case started kind of circulating as an important one. And I think he came out on, I think he got out on Wednesday. I think that's when he was, was released, and, or, or may, it may have even been on Thursday. Well, Thursday was when things really started to build up. You remember they were announcing that Mubarak was going to resign, and then he didn't Thursday <laughs> night. And everybody was like, whoa, what was that all about? So the, the thing is, is that already Al-Ahram had taken the side of the protesters, and that's like the state newspaper. So when um, the people at Nile TV and Nile are, are, are starting to like side with the protesters and making statements, and people are like jumping ship from all the state-run media, and that's the case across the board in the Arab world. I mean, there isn't an Arab country where there's a free and independent press. So the role of Al Jazeera then is, of course, is to break that monopoly, and and so it does that on one hand. It opens up a space for reporting that could be, you know critical of the regimes, and it's fantastic in that respect, and Al Jazeera English provides us with a great opportunity to get the best information that's coming out of the region. I mean, you really can't do better in terms of information coming out of the region. I mean, there's a few bloggers and things like that that are excellent as well, but what it does in relationship to the U.S. media and more generally, you know, BBC and all, all the others is that it keeps the Middle East on the front page when it's falling, you know, in, the, in relationship to domestic issues or, you know, other important international issues that need to get coverage, like, you know, the earthquake in uh, New Zealand. I mean, these are important issues. They need attention. But the thing is, is that Egypt is now gone, pretty much. I mean, Libya is there. But then once Gaddafi's gone, you know, once, you know, Tunisia, once Ben Ali left, who, know, who knows what's going on? You really have to search for news on those issues. But with Al Jazeera, it's always on the front page. And so if you care about the region and you want continuous coverage, that's where you're going to get it. And that's key. And I think people realize that now. And um, so that's a reminder of the Al Jazeera moment that is actually enduring, I hope, in some, some ways. And these issues connect to, uh, to me to two other things. That's the, the broader role of US policy in, in the Middle East and North Africa, but also these questions of agency, of African agency, of North African agency, of subaltern agency, of the agency of the people, as you say, and listening to Al Jazeera last night, there was uh, someone, I think, in Libya saying, well, that he thought, he hoped that the coverage 
the streaming video, uh, Twitter and other forms of coverage would help to shift stereotypes of Arabs that are predominant in the West. And so there's that interesting question here of maybe there are some, some impacts happening. And uh, as we speak, there's mass popular demonstrations occurring in other parts of Africa and the Middle East, in Algeria, Djibouti, Bahrain, Yemen. But Peter mentioned democracy now, and I uh, picked up a, a comment, I think, yesterday that uh, Egypt is exporting democracy to the US and making a connection with protests in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, against the tr attempts to remove uh, uh, collective bargaining and other rights. And so it seems there is a very interesting moment here. Um, what might be the upshot of all this? Uh, we see the uh, US government still moving very slowly on Libya, talking about meetings next week. We see great power uh, positions still in play. But, but yet we see this challenge, or we see this voice growing. We see this subaltern voice. How, how do you think this is, where is all this moving? Well, it's very hard to say where, where is it moving, but it certainly provides uh, a reminder that people can organize. And that uh, in some cases, the, the idea of leadership, a kind of vanguard leadership is exaggerated, that you don't, you don't necessarily need um, these, uh, you know, Castro-like you know, Che Castro leading the revolution, that the people, people in certain situations will come together. Um, and so there can be, especially I think among certain tendencies, leftist tendencies in the U.S. and in the past, but even still, uh, somewhat retrograde, overemphasizing the idea of a leadership figure or a leadership cohort that then is going to go out and educate people about their rights as though they have been just subject to some kind of ideological brainwashing and don't know, you know, why it's not a good thing that they don't have a job or why it's not a good thing that, you know, housing is a problem for them in Port Said or why, you know, bread prices are going up or why, you know, in Libya, you know, gas is expensive for Libyans. Like, why is that? You know, they know that. They know there's a problem. And my, in my experience in the Middle East, in the Arab world more generally from Morocco and Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, is that there is absolute cynicism about leadership. Absolutely. People that I have talked to across the board in the Arab world and outside of the Arab world recognize the corrupt cronyism of their governments, the illegitimacy of them. There is no confidence of them. That doesn't take away from their sense of... Um, you know, pride in being Arab. They feel it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a depressing and some kind, sometimes demobilizing to see these situations, these missed opportunities where you have a country like Libya, five million people exporting, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of barrels a year, a day of oil and not able to actually turn the corner on development and do something serious to not just help those people in Libya, the 5,000, but to uh, help a broader spectrum of people in, say, Tunisia or in Egypt, countries that don't have oil. So uh, I think that uh, what you're pointing to, this issue of like agency and popular um, organizing, and, and is really important. And for people in the U.S. with relative privilege, um, you know, students at a university like Michigan State University or workers in Madison, Wisconsin, whose conditions relative to you know, ordinary Egyptians or ordinary Libyans is quite privileged. 
I think they can see this and they can say, well, we can do something about our situation. We don't have to passively accept, you know, increases in um, uh, healthcare costs and increases in tuition and uh, lowering tax, corporate taxes and all of these things that are used to justify budget, budgetary issues. And so um, it's, a, it's a reminder to organize. I, th I think um, to pick up on a thread earlier that, that Salah put out, uh, which is the question of succession is really interesting. How does a government develop succession? Well, if you have a, a monarch who is cultivating the succession of, of his son, for example, which happened in Morocco and was something Mubarak was presumably working, working to do and North Korea, that son may come to power. In the case of Morocco, when the son of the former king came to power, um, people were hoping that there would be uh, an opening and modernization, they would say, of Morocco. And he, he was fairly well received for a time. It's surprising now to see that there are protests, which indicates that his increasing hold on the executive power um, has remained without, without, uh, without being challenged. So I think that we can see the same thing has happened um, same thing is happening in Libya with the fact the son presenting himself on the television. A succession of power, even under the best circumstances, is going to leave everyone else helpless and having no agency. In the case of Tunisia, it's really ironic, is it not, that Ben Ali, who was chased out, took power when the former president, Bourguiba, had become essentially, what's the polite word when you're old and lost your senses? Incapacitated. Incapacitated, <laughs> right? And, that, and, and, and thus, ben, ben Ali stayed in forever as well. There are other questions, that, if I can raise them very quickly, that, again, I'd like to hear Salah respond. The, first, the, the question that always comes up, is coming up continually, is what can we do? And we means, well, us individuals, that's one thing. We, we feel helpless watching a revolution and want to do something. But then we, of course, the calls to um, the West, the powers who are strong enough to intervene and do something, or the United Nations, the Security Council just met and gave this nice rhetorical statement like Obama, this can't go on, and yet what will they do when the helicopters or airplanes or heavy weapons are used against people in Libya? There are laws, international laws that are at stake here. Do they matter at all in an instance like this? So what, what, what do you think about Well, I think it's complicated, I mean, especially for the U.S., which has such a bad track record in the Arab world and in Africa in terms of supporting, you know, really intolerable regimes. I mean, if you take the case of Gaddafi, of course, he was a pariah up until 2005, but then every major European leader, I mean, Berlusconi, Sarkozy, Putin, Blair, they all went and shook hands with him in 2005, <laughs> as though he is all of a sudden he become like, you know, wonder, a wonderful like and man again, and and a credible leader. When he never, in fact, he was probably at his work, getting to be at his worst at that point, as we can see by what's happening now. So it's very complicated because the track record is so bad. I think the best thing that the like the U.S. government can do really is to stay out of interfering because if it gets involved, and I think Obama recognizes this, then that's going to be used against the protesters because then it's going to be perceived as though external forces are fomenting insurgencies and that's going to be considered treachery and so but, but if he if he began he already uses that if he massacred tens of thousands of people then what yeah what's the responsibility of the united nations yeah, yeah. 
Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that there's been lots of questions raised about humanitarian intervention and at what point it's justifiable for NATO or the UN to intervene. And these are very complicated legal issues. And I don't think I'm really in a position to, to say, you know, what, what would be the right thing to do. And my, my sense is that there has to be mechanisms in place for the UN to, uh, you know, mobilize regional forces to do that. Now, with Egypt in the state that it's in and Tunisia in the, states that, in the state that it's in, of course, you can't use the neighbors to do that. You have to find some other mechanism. I'm not really sure, you know, you know, sending Italians in, that doesn't, you know, the old colonial power doesn't make sense to me. So what are you going to do? I mean, it's I don't know Pakistanis, I mean, with the, all of their problems. I mean, it, the it's, talk of the African Union intervening has come up in recent years in, in, in conf conflicts on the continent as well. Yes, this reminds me of uh, Franz Fanon in The Wretched of the Earth when he says, uh, the third world today faces Europe, we could say the West, like a colossal mass whose project should be to try to resolve the problems to which Europe has not been able to find the answers. It's a complicated and harrowing uh, situation, um, but as they would say in uh, Mozambique, uh, a luta continua, the struggle continues at the grassroots. Thank you, Ken Harrow and Salah Hassan, uh, for talking to Africa, past and present. Thank you. Thanks. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.